This is Future Tense Fiction, a podcast featuring stories about how technology could change tomorrow. I'm Maddie Stone. About a year before COVID-19 emerged in China, Annalie Niewitz imagined what a future infectious disease outbreak might look like in the U.S. One in a poor city, without a CDC, but with an adorable robot, a clever child, and some very resourceful crows. Did this crow really help you find the outbreaks? Yes, the crows think humans are idiots, but they appreciate your garbage. On today's episode, we're bringing you a reading of Annalie Niewitz's story, When Robot and Crow Saved East St. Louis. Then, Annalie tells us whether the real pandemic response would have been better with the right kind of machines. That's all coming up on Future Tense Fiction. Stay with us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Future Tense Fiction. I'm Maddie Stone. I'm a freelance journalist and editor of The Science of Fiction, a newsletter about how science and pop culture intersect. Every month, Slate's Future Tense partnership with New America and Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination publishes a short story that explores how science and technology will shape our future. Now, We're bringing some of those stories to you in a podcast that includes a conversation with the author or an expert in a related field. Today's story is When Robot and Crow Saved East St. Louis by Annalie Niewitz. Annalie is a New York Times contributing opinion writer, science fiction author, and co-host of the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct. If you focus on the setting, Robot and Crow is pretty bleak. It's about a novel disease outbreak that strikes East St. Louis soon after the CDC has been defunded, leaving public health care in the hands of private companies that overlook struggling communities. But Robot and Crow is actually an optimistic story about a plucky robot that finds a way to work with a child, a former CDC employee, and a group of delightfully sarcastic birds to contain an infection before it's too late. While the COVID-19 pandemic often feels like one grim plot twist after the next, Robot and Crow offers hope and humor, reminding us that solutions to society's biggest problems can come from unexpected places. After the story, Annalie and I will talk about the science behind it. And now, When Robot and Crow Saved East St. Louis, read by Jin Hammond. It was time to start the weekly circuit. Robot leapt vertically into the air from its perch atop the History Museum in Forest Park. Rotors humming, and limbs withdrawn into the smooth oval of its chassis. From a distance, it was a pale blue flying egg, slightly scuffed, with a propeller beanie on top. Two animated eyes glowed from the front end of its smooth carapace like emotive headlights. When it landed, all four legs and head extended from portals in its protective shell. The drone was more like a strangely symmetrical poodle, 
or a cartoon turtle. Mounted on an actuator, its full face was revealed. Headlight eyes situated above a short, soft snout, whose purple mouth was built for smiling, grimacing, and a range of other, more subtle expressions. The Centers for Disease Control team back in Atlanta designed Robot to be cute, to earn people's trust immediately, to catch epidemics before they started. Robot flew from building to building, talking to people about how they felt. Nobody wanted to chat with an ugly box. Robot behaved like a cheery little buddy, checking for sick people. That's how Robot's admin, Bay, taught Robot to say it. Checking for sick people. Bay's job was to program Robot with the social skills necessary to avoid calling it health surveillance. Robot liked to start with a loop. Maybe like was the wrong word. It was an urge that came from Robot's mapping system, which webbed the St. Louis metropolitan area in a grid where zero, zero was at Center and Washington. The intersection was nested at the center of the U-shaped streets that local humans called the Loop. A gated community next to Washington University, the Loop was full of smart mansions and autonomous cars that pinged Robot listlessly. Though it was late summer, Robot was on high alert for infectious disease outbreaks. Flu season got longer every year, especially in high-density sprawls like St. Louis, where so many people spread their tiny airborne globs of viruses. Flying in low, Robot followed the curving streets, glancing into windows to track how many humans were eating dinner and whether that number matched previous scans. Wild rabbits dashed across lawns, and fireflies signaled to their mates using pheromones and photons. Robot chose a doorway at random, initiating a face-to-face -face check with humans. In this neighborhood, they were used to it. A human opened the service window. The subject had long, straight hair and skin the color of a peeled peanut. Hello, I am your friendly neighborhood flu fighter. Please cough into this tissue and hold it up to the scanner, please. Robot hovered at eye level reached into its ventral service trunk, and withdrew a sterile sheet with a gripper. This action earned a smile. Robot smiled back, stretching its dog-turtle mouth and plumping its cheeks. Humans valued nonverbal emotional communication, and it was programmed with an entire repertoire of simple exchanges. Bracket, if human is angry, then robot is sad. If human is rude, then robot is embarrassed. If human is happy, then robot is happy. <coughs> the human <coughs> coughed, and robot did a quick metagenomic scan, flagging key viral and bacterial DNA before uploading sequence data to the cloud. Other bots would run the results against a library of known infectious diseases and alert the CDC if any were on the year's rolling list. Six days later, Robot headed across the Mississippi River to East St. Louis. Here, heat and rain had eroded the pavement until its surface was as pocked and fissured as human skin. 
The first time Robot performed health surveillance in this area, nothing fit its generic social programming. Buildings marked as unoccupied were clearly full of humans. Occupant records did not match the names and faces of occupants. People spoke with languages and words that did not match known databases. As a result, Robot could not gather adequate data. When Robot requested help with this problem, Bay was the only CDC admin who responded. She communicated with Robot from Atlanta via cellular network, using audio. Not all humans behave or speak the same way, she told Robot. But you can learn to talk to anyone, gather data, extrapolate from context. Use this. And she sent Robot a blob of code for natural language acquisition and translation. Very quickly, Robot learned that humans used slang, dialects, sociolects, and undocumented lexicons. Bay also sent several datasets taken from an urban studies lab, which supplemented Robot's map data. It turned out that not all humans lived in the same domicile for two years on average. Not all residences had cars and rabbits outside. Some humans lived in places that were not tagged as domestic spaces. Some humans did not use government-assigned identifiers, but all of them could get sick. There was a small neighborhood of soft textile homes underneath the freeway. It did not exist on official maps. Robot knew it because of Bayes' algorithms. Hello, Robot said, landing on the porch of a blue fabric house. It spoke a dialect that was popular here. I'm checking to make sure you're healthy. Please say hello. A human rustled inside, then unzipped the door. Hi, Robot. The human had brown eyes and facial symmetry that matched previous records. It was the same human as last month. Please cough into this tissue and allow me to scan. The human smiled, and Robot knew why. The word for cough in this dialect was a pun for something that humans found endlessly amusing. There was a more formal word for cough, but compliance was higher if Robot used the pun. Higher compliance rates meant better data. Robot, I think my friend Shurika's sick. Can you please check on her? The human was worried, and Robot responded with a sad-slash-concerned expression. Where is Sharika? She's in the new building on State near 14th, on the upper floors that aren't finished. I bet you could fly right in. Thank you for your help. The human petted Robot's head. It was the most common form of physical affection that Robot had documented in its four years and eight months in the St. Louis metropolitan area. Protocol held that Robot should follow up on disease reports immediately, so it flew to the new building on State. Like the textile neighborhood, this building was not a designated residential area. It was a gray box on Robot's official map but visual sensors showed a reflective spire with 20 floors wrapped in steel and glass. 
Five floors rose like a skeletal crown on top, exposing its steel beams, pipes, and drywall. Coming from inside were the sounds of human life. Music, conversations in six languages, babies crying, food sizzling on hot plates. Robot could see electricity cascading down wires from solar panels bolted to the outside of windows. Residents tuned the data network with satellite dishes made from woks and metal cans. From Robot's perspective, it was exactly like other residential buildings, with a few cosmetic differences. Extending its feet and head, Robot landed on the lowest open floor, then walked to the interior, asking for Sharika. A juvenile human opened a green door and said hello. The human had short hair, woven into pink extensions, and a well-worn text reader in one hand. Hello, I am Robot, and I want to make sure you're healthy. A nice person told me Sharika might be sick. Can I meet Sharika? Robot used the same dialect it had in the fabric neighborhood, adding enhancement words that signaled benevolence. The human made a neck motion that meant no. I am a friend who only cares about whether you are well. I am worried about Sharika. Robot made a sad face. The human made a sad face too. Sharika left a couple of days ago. I don't know where she is. How do you feel today? I'm kind of stressed out about school, the human said. How are you feeling? It was very rare for a human to ask Robot how it felt. And there was no stock answer or expression available. So, Robot answered as literally as possible. I am not sick because I am a machine. But I am worried that you are sick. Would you cough into this tissue and allow me to scan it? Are you going to sequence the DNA right now? The human was intrigued. Yes, but I will work with bots on the data network to find out if anything dangerous is in there. I know. You have a list of known infectious diseases, and you'll search for a match. We learned about it in biology class. The human smiled, and Robot smiled back. Yes, this is what I will do. It held out the tissue. <coughs> the human coughed on it and studied Robot very carefully as it conducted the scan. How do you make sure that you don't mistake somebody else's microbiome for mine. Do you sterilize your hand every time? Yes, I do. Robot uploaded its data and talked at the same time. What is your name? Everybody calls me Jalebi. You are named after a fried, spiral-shaped sweet soaked in sugar water. Humans enjoyed it when Robot recognized the meaning behind their names. Jalebi nodded. When I was a kid, I ate so many that I passed out. Too much sugar. So, my brother started calling me Jalebi. Robot was having difficulty making a connection to the cloud. I am going to go back outside to talk to the network. It was nice to meet you, Jalebi. Wait, what's your name? Robot. That's your name? I thought that was your... Race! Jalebi used an ambiguous word that could also mean species. It's my name, 
Robot replied. Robot stood in the darkness beneath the moon, above the neighborhood lights in the unfinished hallway open to the air, and called for the cloud. There was nothing. It called for Bay. There was no answer. It sent an emergency email to the CDC surveillance team list and got an error message. It called and called, charging up every morning in the sunlight and powering down at midnight. After seven days, it got a text message from an unknown private number. Hi, robot. It's Bay. I can't be your admin anymore. I'm really sorry because it was nice to know you. Unfortunately, the CDC lost its funding. I work at Amazon Health now, but we aren't allowed to network with open drones like you. I don't think anyone is going to shut you down or collect you, so I guess you can do whatever you want. If anything really bad happens, text me here on my private number. I hope the language acquisition algorithm is still helping. For the first time, Robot made a sad face that nobody could see. It wasn't sure what really bad meant, but its models of human communication suggested that Bay referred to an outbreak. The problem was that Robot had no way to conduct a typical surveillance circuit without somewhere to upload its data for analysis. Plus, it was going to run out of sterile tissues. That's what happened last year when the government shut down and Walgreens froze its CDC account. Robot used the government shutdown scenario to model its current situation and predicted that it meant the Walgreens account would be frozen for an indeterminate length of time. The 5,346 sterile tissues remaining in its chassis were the last it would ever have. The sterilizing gel for its gripper was already running low. Bay said Robot could do whatever it wanted, which is the kind of thing humans said when they expected it to predict which data-gathering task should be prioritized. Based on current supply levels and its onboard analysis capabilities, Robot determined it should focus on learning local languages and human social habitation practices. It would attempt to reach the cloud every morning and would reprioritize if disease analysis systems became available again. Robot thrust its head out of the pocked oval of its body, a determined smile on its face. In the absence of a human, the expression was intended only for a theoretical model of a person who always cared what Robot thought and did. A crow stood next to Robot on the building's edge, looping its leg over one wing to scratch its head. It regarded Robot for a second, then said something before flying away. The phonemes were part of an unknown language, and Robot added them to a sparse data set it had gathered from other crows in the area. Now that it could do what it wanted, Robot reasoned, it was time to make that data set robust. 
Many crows flew up here and perched, often in groups of three or four, and their sounds followed the same general patterns as any natural language. It could learn a lot by staying right here, down the hall from Jalebi's habitat. The days grew shorter, and new constellations rose in the sky. Robots started to pick up a few phrases from context. In the mornings and evenings, the crows discussed the sun's position and its relationship to likely sources of food. Soon, Robot could piece together bits of syntax, using brackets to designate uncertain or unknown meanings. Bracket, food type, and bracket. Four, bracket, measurement units, and bracket, north of the morning sun. There were also location calls, which it roughly translated to food here, and I'm, bracket, name, and bracket, here, and get over here, bracket, you, and bracket. Its first translation breakthrough came one morning when a statistically unusual number of crows gathered near its perch. Robot counted 23 birds at one point, many of whom were quite large. Maybe they were from different subspecies? Or elder crows? From what Robot had learned by querying the internet, zoologists drew the line between crow species arbitrarily based on calls and cultural differences. This seemed like an important meeting. So perhaps multiple crow groups were invited in a show of corvid solidarity. Robot recorded hundreds of new words. It learned a few of the birds' names as well. Suddenly, one of the ravens gave a location call. There! North 5! Bracket. Measurement units. End bracket. Group! They took off at once, and Robot followed them. It was time to test out its ability to communicate by using a location call. I'm here, joining group. A crow flew alongside Robot and answered. I'm here, Three Cry. Three Cry was Robot's approximation of the bird's name, which it recorded as a series of three high-pitched phonemes issued in rapid succession. Other birds answered with their own names. I'm here. Two chop, one ka. I'm here, four cry. I'm here, two chop. Robot now had a running list of phonemes used in crow names and tried to record them faithfully. They flew as a loose pack, not forming a V the way other birds did. Crows usually preferred smaller social groups and didn't care about staying in a tidy line. They only came together in large numbers to deal with issues serious enough that even an egg-shaped drone was permitted to come along. Enemy! Enemy! One of the ravens barked out the word, its accent slightly different from the crows. Far ahead, a hawk coasted on the updrafts from the city in a large, lazy circle. Egg killer! Trespasser! Attack from above! The birds called names and orders to each other soaring over the hawk's head and dive-bombing it. Though hawks have excellent vision from the front of their faces, they also have two major blind spots above and behind. This particular hawk was immediately thrown off its trajectory by a mob of angry crows, clipping it from out of nowhere. Three Cry called to Robot. Come here! 
above to below. Robot modeled several scenarios and settled on one that would knock the hawk out of the updraft without causing any health risks to the bird. Communicating with the crows was important, but the health of living beings was paramount. Coming down gently on the hawk's back, Robot pushed lightly, keeping up with the bird's speed, while also altering its course. The hawk let out an incomprehensible scream and dove, escaping the crows by heading across the Mississippi. Out of here! Go! And group! Four crows followed after the hawk, but the rest of the corvid scattered. Robot flew back toward Jalebi's building, modeling possible new words by correlating matching sounds from different birds. Three Cry followed close behind. I'm here, Three Cry, female. You are here. Robot predicted that Three Cry was asking for its name and gender. It replied using crow words, then switched to a human word for robot. It did not yet know the word for non-gendered in crow language, so it did not offer a designation. Three Cry flew silently for a while. They landed on the building and looked at the horizon. Robot offered a friendly greeting in crow language. Afternoon time. Enemy gone. Robot is here. Three Cry pronounced its name perfectly. Human sound. Robot searched for the right words from its limited vocabulary. Humans are here with my group. Three Cry cleaned her right wing, chewed on a mite, and cocked her head at Robot. Humans are not a group. They can't speak. They reject food. They speak with other sounds. Robot's vocabulary was growing bigger the more they talked. They eat other food. Three Cry made a soft clucking noise that meant the same thing as human laughter. You are a fool. Robot predicted that assent was the best response. Yes, I am. Yes, you are. Three Cry leaned over and gently poked a bit of dirt from the edge of Robot's mouth. Robot plucked a broken feather off Three Cry's back. When they cleaned each other, it was like when a human smiled at Robot, and Robot smiled back. We're going to take a short break here. When we come back, more of when Robot and Crow saved East St. Louis. Stay with us on Future Tense Fiction. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're listening to Future Tense Fiction. I'm Maddie Stone. Now, back to Annalie Niewitz's story, When Robot and Crow Saved East St. Louis. Three Cry and Robot became what the crows called a group, which meant that they flew together during the day. They met in the mornings, on the ledge, 
after Robot's daily attempt to reach the CDC. Robot didn't need food, but it was good at identifying potential sources of sustenance for Three Cry. Food here, it would say, hovering over a fragrant bin. After scavenging with Three Cry through city waste, it was easy to understand why she thought humans rejected food and were therefore basically non-sentient. Over the weeks, their conversations became more complex, but many concepts defied translation. Robot still didn't understand the crow's unit of measurement for distances, and Three Cry didn't understand Robot's interest in health. From what Robot could discover, crows understood the concept of death and near-death, but didn't talk about disease specifically. Disease was one of many ideas that could be described with the word near-death, which also happened to be a pun on the word for unripe food. Many crow words were puns, which made translation even more difficult. For conversations about health, Robot relied more and more on Jalebi. She had figured out that it was roosting with Three Cry on the ledge near her habitat, and came to visit for what she called study sessions. Using text devices, she gathered data very slowly, then synthesized it even more slowly. Robot spent hours quizzing Jalebi about molecular structures and chemical interactions, marveling at the concept of a mind that came online without this information. Still, Robot liked to have a human face to mirror its own expressions. It felt unquantifiably more satisfying to smile at a human than it did to smile at its own internal representation of a human. After so long in the company of Three Cry and Jalebi, Robot began to question what exactly that internal representation might really be. Maybe it wasn't a human at all. Maybe it was a self-representation, and Robot had been smiling at itself all along. Usually, when Jalebi came to the edge with her textbooks, Three Cry left with a string of curses. These weren't necessarily hostile. Crows liked to insult each other, and often did it with great affection. Mostly, they thought it was hilarious that humans couldn't understand words. So, crows rained their most creative snark on human heads, marveling at how oblivious they were to the humiliations they suffered from the beaks of people flying overhead. But one afternoon, Three Cry arrived during their study session and did not fly away. Jalebi was musing about something she'd learned in a recent lesson about atomic structure. What if it turns out we really are spreading cancer to each other on a quantum level? She asked. Human squawking, Three Cry yelled. Shit and plastic, featherless fool. Robot decided to ignore the insults. Afternoon time, it said pleasantly. Human here, Jalebi, part of the group. Group does not involve living sandwiches, Three Cry laughed. Jalebi watched, wide-eyed. Can you speak crow language? A little, Robot said. My vocabulary is small, but I can say a few things. This is Three Cry. She's my friend. 
As it said the word, Robot realized it was true. Thanks to Bay's social programming, it knew that groups were statistically likely to be made up of friends or kin. Since robots have no kin, that meant Jalebi was a friend too. Jalebi tried to make the sound of Three Cry's name, Cacaw. and the bird ignored it. I found something you like, robot. Near death. All over a human tree. She said your name perfectly. I read that crows can imitate words, but I'd never heard it before. Three Cry glanced at Jalebi, then at Robot. Annoying Jalebi. She said my name too. <gasps> That's so cool. But Robot wasn't paying attention to the interesting language data points. It predicted Three Cry had found a disease outbreak, and that took precedence over all other inputs. I have to go, it said to Jalebi. To Three Cry, it added, Take me there. Robot followed Three Cry in a southeasterly direction, eventually alighting at the top of a building on Missouri Street. Like Jalebi's home, this building was partly open to the air. Its layout suggested that it might have been a public building like the CDC. There were long hallways lined with small rooms like offices. Water sources were located in a few areas, unlike in a typical habitat, where water welled up in multiple rooms. But it was definitely a human habitat now, with soft bedding and buckets for water, and data access points made from cans. As they flew down a stairwell, Robot tried to estimate the population of the building based on noise, heat, and live wires. It settled on a 75% probability of 50 humans on each upper floor, with populations growing as they descended. Here, Three Cry landed on a railing in front of a door marked 2 for second floor. Near death! Thank you! And group! Three Cry said, taking to the air. The phrase was one way crows said goodbye. Until morning! Robot replied, already using a gripper to tug the door open. The corridor was full of light from scratched windows along the left-hand side, illuminating dozens of doors to habitats that were once something else. Classrooms? Offices? Consulting rooms? Robot flew slowly past them, modeling possibilities and looking for humans. The fourth door was propped open, and several humans were inside. Their breathing was labored, and one was crying. Something had knocked out the walls between rooms, creating a wide open space full of cloth dwellings, plush bedding, and piles of bright plastic containers. It was time to land. Humans didn't like it when Robot flew overhead, and besides, the face and legs were part of what made it seem so friendly. Walking over to one of the humans wrapped in blankets, Robot smiled and waved a tiny gripper in greeting. Patchy black hair covered the human's head, and cracks had formed in the lips that didn't smile. With no baseline language established, Robot estimated that it should try the dialect spoken in Jalebi's building. I'm a friend who is worried about your health. Can you cough into a tissue for me? The human stared at Robot's face and blinked before succumbing to a coughing fit. 
For Robot, it didn't matter whether the coughs were intentional or not. It took a sample and moved on to the next human. Hello, Robot said to the juvenile, who was using a mobile device to access the internet. Are you a cop? The juvenile used a sociolective English that was common in East St. Louis. I am a friend who checks to make sure you're healthy. I share information with doctors, not police. The human frowned, and Robot made a sad face. A lot of people here are sick. I would like to help. Nobody's gonna help, stupid drone. Hospital for citizens only, yeah? Please cough into the tissue so I can figure out why you're sick. Another human spoke up, head emerging from a cloth shelter. What are you going to do about it? Robot stood still for several microseconds, modeling possibilities and considering what language would be the most soothing. I'm going to find out what's causing your illness. This is an emergency. I will find help, I promise. Please cough into the tissue. <coughs> one by one, the humans complied. Robot flew from room to room, checking for disease. After sequencing several samples, it found the same virus strain in multiple humans. This met the definition of an outbreak. It was time to call Bay. Is that you, Robot? I can't believe you're still running. It's been... What, over a year? Something really bad is happening in East St. Louis, Robot said, deploying the exact words Bay had used to delineate when it would be appropriate to call her. There is an outbreak. I need to send you data. Do you have sequence? Maybe I can... Robot heard background noise, as if Bay were moving something on her desk. Can you send it as an anonymous dump to this address? She sent the directions to a temporary storage cloud and Robot deposited data from 127 samples it had taken from humans in the building. We have a system for anonymous reporting, part of this new Amazon Health Philanthropy project. Bay paused. Got it. Let me analyze this really fast and see if it's more than just a garden variety. Oh, shit. Robot predicted that she was not saying shit for the same reason 3Cry did. What is it? Robot asked putting on a fearful expression for itself. This is really bad, like you said. We need to get someone in there. Unfortunately, Illinois doesn't have a state health department. Maybe there's a local group or... Bay was typing. Okay, robot, I found something. There's a nonprofit health collective in East St. Louis called Community Immunity. They could probably manufacture vaccines and a therapy. It's a known pathogen, but... It hasn't ever been spotted in the Midwest before, so all they need is this file. Bay sent a small amount of data. Do you have anyone who can help you? You might need a human. Sometimes people are hostile to drones, even cute ones. Two hours later, Robot was describing the situation to Jalebi. It was evening, and Three Cry was likely sleeping with other members of her group. But Jalebi was wide awake and extremely agitated. You're talking about that health collective on MLK Drive. I've seen it. Robot nodded, smiling. Can we go there now? Jalebi glanced toward the door to her habitat. 
Yeah, my mom won't be home until morning anyway. Community Immunity was located in the husk of an old strip mall. Its gleaming counters and wet lab hidden behind windows duct-taped with tinfoil and cardboard. Bay was right that Robot needed a human. Jalebi had to pretend that Robot was her school project, and Robot had to pretend that Jalebi had programmed it to look for outbreaks. Once the humans at Community Immunity had the data, they made unhappy faces and said, Oh shit, in the same way Bay had. A human with purple hair and a prosthetic arm offered Jalebi a seat and some hot tea. The human spoke the same sociolect of English that Bay used. It's very good that you brought this to us. You are a good citizen. Then the human looked at Robot. Thank you, Robot, for giving us the file with an open therapy and vax recipe. I am happy to help. I don't like it when people are sick. This human, unlike the others, seemed to know that Robot was the person who found the outbreak. I'm Janelle, by the way. She, her pronouns. Do you know if there are other places where H18N2 is infecting people? Robot liked the way Janelle identified herself by name and gender, the way Crows did. A friend told me about this outbreak. I don't know if there are others. Robot deliberately chose vague language. After Bay's warning, it did not want to reveal its data-gathering techniques. Janelle took it in stride. Can your, uh, friend help find more? We can manufacture a therapy and a vax tonight, but we need to get it out there fast before the sucker mutates. Robot nodded. Tomorrow, I will try to find more. When Three Cry arrived in the morning, Robot had to strain against the boundaries of its vocabulary to make itself understood. Need group. Find near-death enemy. Enemy? Three Cry scratched her head. Enemy for humans, Robot admitted. But then it had an idea. Enemy causes human death. Dead humans mean less food. Despite butchering the crow syntax, Robot thought it had made Three Cry understand. Plus, sometimes crows just liked an excuse to get the mob together. Begin group, Three Cry yelled, taking off. Robot leapt into the air behind her. They flew over East St. Louis, calling for the big group that had taken out the hawk. Begin group! Begin group! More birds joined them. Here! I'm here! They called their names and swirled to roost in a tree at the edge of the Mississippi River, where Freeway met water. Find near death, Three Cry said, then issued some directions and specification words that Robot did not understand. Near death, there, bracket, measurement unit, end bracket, north. The words came from a big crow named Two Chop One Ka, jumping into flight. Most of the group followed, possibly to assess what exactly Three Cry meant by near death. Two Chop One Ka led them to a fabric habitat nearby, where Robot quickly identified three sick people. The virus matched the H18N2 signature identified at Community Immunity. More near death! Where else? Begin group! Robot called the birds to the air again, and they fanned out over the city, making a racket and hurling their best insults. 
Each time they uncovered a new outbreak, they gave their loudest calls, sometimes passing those calls to the next bird until Robot could follow their cries back to the source. By the end of the day, they had discovered five small outbreaks. And group! Three Cry yelled, following Robot back toward MLK. The crows called farewells and locations to each other. And group! Evening time! I'm here! You there! Food! Death! This was followed by laughter, because food and death diverged into many puns, far beyond Robot's comprehension. Three Cry appeared to have decided that she was roosting with Robot for the evening. When they landed, she hooked her claws around its rotor pole and clung there as Robot signaled arrival to the door of Community Immunity. Robot didn't mind. Humans found small animals disarming, and that always led to greater compliance. Jalebi was there with Janelle, looking at something on a monitor. Hi, Robot! We have data on the location of more outbreaks. Janelle laughed. Really? Did your little feathered friend help? Her name is Three Cry. Jalebi failed to pronounce Three Cry's name again. And once again, Three Cry ignored it, jumping off Robot and using her beak to straighten the feathers under her right wing. Robot reached over and plucked one out that was bothering her. Where can I put this data? Robot aimed a concerned expression at Jalebi and Janelle. Put it here for now. Janelle waved a mobile device near Robot, setting it to accept uploads. Jalebi, do you want to help us synthesize those doses of nasal spray? Looks like we'll need at least 500. And then we'll start making vax doses for injection. Yes, absolutely! Jalebi acted like a crow about to charge into the air, but she was only racing across the room to boot up a mixer. Janelle had a thoughtful expression on her face. Did this crow really help you find the outbreaks? Yes, the crows think humans are idiots, but they appreciate your garbage. Janelle laughed for a long time, and Robot was not entirely sure why. When Jalebi returned, she sat down alongside Robot in Three Cry and smiled. This place is really cool. I like it here. Maybe this is your group, Robot guessed. Maybe. Jalebi cocked her head like Three Cry. She scooped up a tiny tube full of wound adhesive. Here, hand me that beautiful feather. Robot dropped Three Cry's feather into her hand. Dabbing a bit of adhesive on Robot's back, she stuck a feather to its shell, next to the place where its rotor pole emerged. Three Cry was startled. I like it, she said. That human is fool. Yes, she is, Robot agreed. You are also a fool. Yes, I am. The three people roosted contentedly next to each other on the floor, watching Janelle and the humans preparing antivirals for other humans. It was a scenario that Robot would not have predicted, but now it could. Robot smiled to itself, organized the data, and retrained its model for friendship.
That was When Robot and Crow Saved East St. Louis, written by Annalie Niewitz and read by Jin Hammond. Coming up, Annalie tells us about communication and compassion in the time of pandemic. That's just ahead on Future Tense Fiction. Stay with us. You're listening to Future Tense Fiction, and you just heard When Robot and Crow Saved East St. Louis. Annalie Niewitz could have written Robot and Crow in 2022 as a clear commentary on the pandemic and our failure to fund public health programs at the levels that are needed. But Annalie wrote this story in 2018, which makes it feel eerily prescient. I asked what inspired them to write the story in the first place. You know, I was thinking a lot about pandemics um, because this is something that, you know, many experts have known was coming. And in fact, a lot of the warnings about pandemics coming from, um, you know, people who were doing infectious disease studies and models, the predictions were much darker than than what we actually ended up getting with, with COVID. And I became really interested in the question of how we would cope with one of these inevitable pandemics or epidemics, combined with the fact that I was watching the national infrastructure decay, um, the national infrastructure for coping with any kind of health emergency. Because under the Obama administration, there had been this kind of half-hearted effort to set up a pandemic response group within the government. And that was one of the first things that uh, Trump eliminated, um, along with a lot of other programs. And very little commentary um, occurred because most people didn't even know what this pandemic program was or why we would need it. And I think it had been set up after SARS. And so people were like, ah, that's over. So I, I was sort of thinking of both thing, of both of these emergencies, the one emergency, which is the obvious health emergency, and the other emergency, which I consider to be actually a more terrifying emergency, which is the emergency of the government no longer having resources or a system for coping with this kind of health problem. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose East St. Louis as the setting for this story? Yeah, so East St. Louis is across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. And it is a sprawling suburban area. It's suffered from a lot of uh, neglect and blight, but it is also coming back as well. Um, There's lots of areas where uh, local folks have managed to get funding to rebuild and especially rebuilding schools and things like that. Um, And my interest in the area was the fact that it is a place that's been inhabited for hundreds of years. There was an ancient indigenous city there that was part of the Mississippian culture called, we call it Cahokia now, we don't know what the folks who lived there a thousand years ago called it. But to me, I had written a lot about the archaeology of the area. And to me, what was interesting was the fact that this is a continuously inhabited region. I mean, Cahokia, the city, became a going concern in the 900s. But people had been living there for hundreds of years before that. There's ample evidence. And so it felt like a place that has been kind of forgotten about in the modern world, but that has historically been incredibly important. And I think To me, that's something I love doing in my fiction is reminding people that places are historically important, even if you don't think they are. (laughs) Um, And that there are that there are places where 
Um, there's incredible history and culture that, uh, you know, the mainstream culture in the United States kind of neglects and, and forgets. And so I wanted a story in one of those places. Um, and it's funny because when uh, I recently worked with some folks doing a radio play version of this story, um, one of them had grown up in a rural area um, that was kind of in an area like St. Louis. They were sort of outside of an area like St. Louis. And they said, you know, the one thing that you didn't know because you didn't grow up in an area like this is if you actually had some kind of health problem, you would drive into the city. You wouldn't go looking in East St. Louis for help. You would go into St. Louis. And I was like, okay, yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. So that was something that I got wrong. (laughs) Mm, Okay. Well, that's really fascinating that you chose it because of that ancient history, which I only know about the city of Cahokia from reading your book, Four Lost Cities. Um, But I had not put together the fact that that was the literal present day site of East St. Louis. Yeah. Now with that context in mind and thinking about how it's described in the story as sort of this this very organic growth type city where people are living in these buildings that aren't necessarily, you know, zoned residential and that aren't necessarily even fully built. Um, I just I had this sense reading the story of just sort of layers and layers of habitation and development sort of on top of each other. And that makes a lot more sense now given that deep archaeological history. Yeah, and it's layers of development that have an economic meaning too, right? Like the city is being kind of built by rich people for people who have money, but the people who live there don't have money, and so they're figuring out how to reclaim their space from these distant developers who are building these crappy high-rises. So let's talk a little about Robot, the character at the heart of this story. While... It feels to me like Robot grows into something more than a piece of machinery over the course of the story. This is a device that was designed by the CDC to be a sophisticated piece of medical surveillance technology. Can you talk a little bit about just the concept of medical surveillance? So one way we see medical surveillance in our world right now is all of the studies that have been done of wastewater in cities looking to see the levels of coronavirus in the wastewater. But health surveillance also takes the form of everything from just if you get an infectious disease, your doctor reporting it to the CDC, that's a form of health surveillance. That means your healthcare worker is um, reporting, hopefully reporting it anonymously. Uh, health surveillance is supposed to be entirely anonymous. It's supposed to be you turn into a number with some kind of condition so that we can see epidemiologically whether there is an outbreak or a spread of something. Um, but health surveillance can also be something like your Apple Watch um, talking to the cloud and recording your um, heart rate or your sleep patterns. So Um, And now there's concerns about um, period trackers being used as health surveillance, which is kind of the dark side of health surveillance. Um, There's fears that people who are using period trackers in states that um, have outlawed abortion, um, that there'll be some kind of ping if you get pregnant um, that will alert the authorities that you might be seeking an abortion. So that's bad surveillance. And then there's the good surveillance like Robot is trying to do in my story. And Robot is a little... um, drone creature who has been designed with a very cute face 
and with a an onboard system for just testing people for all kinds of um, communicable diseases. And Robot goes around to everyone's house and perches adorably outside their windows or doors and says, hello, can you cough into this little tissue for me? And people tend to comply because Robot is so cute and friendly. I'm really glad you brought up Robot's sort of over-the-top cuteness because that really struck me. I found that to be a really fascinating aspect of this character. You describe Robot looking a bit like a cartoon turtle with these big glowy eyes and this propeller beanie and its behavioral program also seems to amplify that cuteness, right? It puts on this big, happy smile if the human it's talking to seems happy and it looks sad if the human is angry. These are the sorts of emotional responses we might expect from a puppy, for example. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about why you chose to make this robot designed for tracking disease outbreaks, which... I think we can objectively agree, not the cutest topic in the world. We're talking about, <laughs> you know, scouring wastewater for viruses and, and related approaches. Why did you decide to sort of personify that as this adorable cartoon character? Is this a way of helping people get over the, the dark side of medical surveillance, as you were saying, or their fears about the dark side of health surveillance? I think it's about helping them get over the fears because, and the fears are legitimate. As I said, like there are examples historically, and I'm sure there will be in the future of medical information being used to um, harm or discriminate against people. So one of the biggest problems with health surveillance now and in the past has been compliance, either because people are concerned about privacy, they don't want to share their data or they just don't want to go to the doctor, right? So it's not even like they are doing it out of some kind of fear. They're just, you know, they're not, they get sick and they don't let anyone know. And having a little friend who goes door to door and seems completely non-threatening is one way that um, interface designers have talked about to get around um, hesitancy because we can't help responding with friendliness to a cute face. There's been a ton of studies. Um, a lot of them came out of the Media Lab at MIT. Uh, the social robotics group there has tested people's responses to very simple robot faces. You know, and if they smile and they are cute, people just ha they they just can't stop themselves from being like, oh, I want to talk to the cutie. And so, but the other thing about robot is that robot has an extra power that was never intended um, by the robot's designers, because robot has a programmer, uh, her name is Bay, and she's black. And one of the things that she knows that most of the creators of robot don't ever think about is that robot needs to learn to speak a number of different languages in order to communicate with the people of the St. Louis area. And so Robot gets the most compliance when Robot is in this wealthy area of St. Louis where we see the story begin. But as Robot goes into East St. Louis, using the same kinds of languages, using the same kinds of accents, isn't going to work. Uh, you can't talk like a rich white person in East St. Louis and expect people to say, oh, sure, I'll sneeze into a Kleenex for you. Right. And so Bay, Robot's programmer, has said, like, look, 
you need to study how people talk. You need to pay attention to the languages that people are using and use those and learn how to be contextually aware. Um, and this is something that I added because one of the problems with AI and machine learning is that it is being designed by a really small group of culturally homogenous people. And that's creating all kinds of problems and will create problems in the future. So I wanted to at least throw in there that like, Robot got lucky because Robot had one of the few programmers out there who was like, you know, I'm aware that there aren't just like middle class and rich white people using this device. Um, and I want to make sure that this robot knows that too. Well, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because language is so central to the story and how Robot learns to communicate with different groups of humans and non-humans is really pivotal in Robot's ultimate success in uh, alerting public health officials to a new disease outbreak and then ultimately containing it. So when Robot gets disconnected from its network because the CDC loses funding, again, eerily prescient little detail there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's upsetting. It's, it's free to do whatever it wants, and it decides to remain in East St. Louis and spend some time learning the local dialects, as, as you just said. And... I just love that, you know, as is the case in many urban areas, there's a lot of crows in East St. Louis. And so Robot makes an autonomous decision that, oh, maybe I should start learning crow language. Why do you think an AI designed to track diseases in humans might choose to learn crow if left to its own devices? That's an interesting question. <laughs> I had never like put that together quite like that. Why does a disease-loving um, robot seek out disease-loving birds? You know, I think, I mean, partly it's just purely that I love crows and I interact with crows a lot. I feed my local crows and my office window looks out onto a huge tree where the crows like to hang out and talk to each other. So it was partly just purely my fantasy of what if I could learn crow language. And then the other part of it is that Robot has been abandoned at that point in the story and doesn't know what to do. Robot has also got a very limited supply of tissues and um, chemicals to analyze what it's found. So it can't really just continue doing its job or it'll just run out of supplies. So it flies up to a high area on this building where a bunch of people are squatting and just starts talking to whoever will talk to it. And the crows are talking and it's it becomes an interesting problem. And of course, the crows can fly just the way Robot does. So these are friends that Robot can make that can kind of hang out with Robot in ways that humans never could. Yeah. And, and so... As it turns out, as robots start hanging out with crows more and grouping with them and going on hawk attacks with them and all sorts of fun fun crow activities, all sorts of crow missions, uh, robot and readers of the story start to discover that crow language is fairly complex. As an ignorant human, I, I might have expected it to be just alarm calls and mating calls, but it's it's really a lot more than that in your story. The birds discuss the position of the sun. They share distances to food, they have their own measurement units, and they use language to form groups and, and organize attacks against their enemies. They also do a lot of shit talking, and they have a lot of 
puns and double entendres. And one of the things Robot has a huge uh, problem with is understanding all of the like triple and quadruple entendres that they're making all the time. And they're constantly making fun of people, just constantly. I love how they think that people are like basically these non-sentient creatures because we discard food, which if you think about it for more than like a second is a pretty not intelligent thing to do, right? Yeah. (laughs) The crows are like, wait, you put all your food in these giant boxes and just leave it out? Well, thanks, but also you must be, yeah, fools. (laughs) Yeah, you must must not be the brightest bunch. I love that. Um, What sort of research did you do in order to flesh out crow language? And how realistic were you trying to make it based on what we know about crow behavior and cognition? Or were you just sort of taking creative liberties here? Um, Definitely a healthy dose of taking liberties, but I have read a ton of studies on crow cognition. And one of the things we know about crows is that they do play. So I thought them having a sense of humor and shit talking made a lot of sense with what we know about them. Um, We also know that they're great problem solvers, and so they have very complex cognition. They're able to do puzzles that are like eight or nine steps. There's tons of YouTube videos, and you will see some amazing stuff. And they use tools as well. They're they're tool users who have a wide variety of tools. Different groups of crows um, have developed different tools, uh, depending on their environment. I didn't think it was a stretch that they would be really smart. I definitely don't think it's a stretch that they're making fun of us. And the other thing I was looking at a lot was studies of uh, whale communication. And actually, the way that I translate some of the crow language uh, comes from the way that researchers who look at whales will describe whale calls. The main uh, crow character from the title is called Three Cry, which is the number three with cry. So it's I was imagining it being like, oh, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so when people talk about whale calls um, and whale communication, they'll often do something like that. They'll say like, you know, two call, like number two, and then with a type of sound, and then like another. So they're just sort of, um, because they don't know what the words are, they sort of turn them into phonemes. And so that I was also stealing from. That is super cool. Can you talk a little bit more, because I know this isn't the only time in which you've tried to get inside the mind of non-humans and, and you know, present how they think through their language. So can you just talk a little bit more about your process there and how language can help us see the world from the perspective of non-humans? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, I have done this a lot in my other writing. In my first novel, Autonomous, uh, one of the characters is a robot. And we see from uh, her perspective what it's like to have a brain that's basically built on top of network protocols that we use uh, on the internet. Um, And so a lot of the way that robots communicate with each other. They use what we would think of as maybe like formal language of greetings. You know, like if you say, hello, how are you? But the robot, instead of saying, hello, how are you, says, you know, here comes my data. Can we exchange a secure key to encrypt the session? And to them, that's politeness. But to us, of course, that's a computer network um, kind of greeting, a handshake that would happen across um, a network between two computers. So I like to think about where language comes from in that way. Like, okay, so for a a robot, their sense of self is going to grow out of, I think, computer networks. If if ever such a a creature exists, that would happen. Um, And then I think non-human animals, 
you have to think about the references that they would be encountering in their worlds and the kinds of things that they would care about, which is why I have crows making a lot of puns about death because they're carrion eaters. They gain life from death. Um, and so they spend a lot of time looking for dead stuff. Death means a bunch of different things to them. And Robot just has this incredible problem trying like, why do they keep saying death in this context? Um, and it's just because it's a, you know, they've, they've kind of built their, their culture around this thing that's really important. Ultimately, what I want readers to come away feeling is that the idea of human intelligence and superiority is just complete propaganda and bullshit. That is just homo sapiens propaganda and that we are no more intelligent or no more cognitively capable than any number of other non-human creatures. But part of our bias is that we are like, oh, well, we're the only thinkers. You know, sure, like these non-human animals have names for each other. They engage in all of this complicated social behavior. But that's just instinct. That isn't true intelligence. And I just think that's crap. (laughs) I love that idea of sort of when you're thinking about how a non-human mind works, think about the things in the world that they are going to encounter. And that gives you a frame of reference for the concepts they have. And and this is why crows have a concept of death. And very usefully in the story, also this concept of near death, right? Which is how Robot is able to convey the idea of disease to them and then enlist his his group of crows to go out and be his little disease tracking sentinels. Yeah, they love that too. They're like, oh, look for near death among humans? Sure. Like they're just, yeah, they're primed for it. They're like, this is totally fun. Yeah, they're ready. So they become the best ever, you know, health surveillance device because they're never going to tell the cops because they don't care, but they will tell robot where the sick people are so that they're able to go get vaccinated. And just to follow up on that idea, I mean, I definitely feel like, you know, this is a story that ends on a happy note. Robot and his merry band of crows and human helpers save the day and prevent this outbreak from spiraling more out of control. And so on the one hand, I feel like we can read and hear a message that health surveillance can be a force for good, as as you were talking about earlier. But at the same time, I guess I can easily see an alternate version of this story in which Robot makes slightly different decisions. Say it goes to the police with information about this squatter community that's afflicted with this strange disease instead of going to a public health clinic, and things could have turned out really differently. And so I'm just curious whether you were trying to impart a takeaway about health surveillance technology and, you know, the the morality of it. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think we need health surveillance. We need anonymous health surveillance, and we do need it to operate outside of um, police surveillance. Um, it, It has to be on a totally different track. And I think Robot's story, as you said, on one hand, it's a very cute kind of almost Disney story where it's like Robot makes friends and through friendship is able to help a community, right? It's just East St. Louis that's dealing with this outbreak. It's not a global pandemic. It's a local pandemic that's caused largely by poverty and the, and the conditions that people are living in because they're houseless. And so they're they're living in these big groups and disease can spread really quickly. So... 
Robot is lucky because, like I said, Robot has Bay, this programmer who has probably corrected a lot of the bias in Robot's algorithms. Um, and then Robot is lucky enough to meet not just Three Cry, but also a girl named Jalebi who lives in one of these squats and who's a super big bio geek. And so she also gives Robot the perspective of the people who live in the local community. And so Robot's friendship and loyalty is with the people um, who are squatting in this building, not with the people who own the building, not with the people who police the building. And so it's a combination of the fact that, you know, obviously, the robot was programmed to do something good, you know, to keep people healthy. But also, luckily, all of the humans that and and other not and non human um, friends that the robot makes are community minded and are not part of some kind of state surveillance um, apparatus. So it's, it's kind of it's a way of thinking about how it's not just the intention behind the technology that matters. It's the way that we program the technology. It's the way we use the technology. It's who has access to the technology. Um, because ultimately, they go to a, a local, like you said, a local clinic, that's a co op, basically, um, where they are going to just fabricate a vaccine because it's the future, and they can do that. Um, and so they managed to completely circumvent dealing with any um, state authorities or municipal authorities. But yeah, it could be different, right? It could have been like, you know, could have been that robot identified with those rich people over in St. Louis and was like, never even in East St. Louis. Like, that's the other, like, I think that's the real alternate story is that like, Nobody ever notices, and then a ton of people die in East St. Louis from this outbreak that could have been prevented if we actually had good, unbiased health surveillance. So that's, I think that's the darkest outcome is not even like going to the cops, but just being like, oh, those people don't even exist. You know, there's just nobody over there. Yeah. What's it like looking back on this story today? Do you feel like you would have written anything differently or emphasized anything more or less with the experience of having spent nearly three years in a pandemic at this point? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I would have written it, actually, because I'd be like, oh, nobody wants to hear about this anymore. Um, I The one thing that I totally didn't think about uh, was the experience of stay-at-home um, like stay at home orders and like masking and social distancing. And, you know, I was, I was thinking purely about vaccinations and um, how you would manage vaccinations and how you would do health surveillance. I wasn't thinking about like all the other steps that we had to go through and the kind of the boredom of the pandemic, uh, the, yeah, the experience of like being afraid of disease. I think if I were doing it now, there'd be a lot more people masking, you know, or not masking. And there'd be like a lot of social cues around like what it means to be masking or not masking. And like, a lot of the kinds of disruptions that happen economically when there's epidemics, because this is supposed to be a world where epidemics are breaking out all the time, because there's pandemics, there's pandemic diseases that are just like floating everywhere. And sometimes a community will just get one. And if it's a rich community, everybody's vaccinated, or they have access to Paxlovid or whatever. And if they're not, you know, you get a situation like in this story. So yeah, that's what was missing boredom and masking. 
<laughs> and masking politics. <laughs> the the banality of the pandemic, in other words. Yeah, the, the banality is a good way of putting it. Yeah, because I'd never experienced a pandemic. So I was just like, it would obviously be like total emergency and everybody like swings into action instead of, well, first we deny that it exists. Then we like... <laughs> pretend like you don't need masks and you know like there's just a lot of stuff that uh, I never would have guessed right right and then we have a vaccine and we all have to sort of drag our feet and decide whether we want to get it or not and have this huge misinformation ecosystem around it and I mean I would love it to turn out the way it turns out in your story where we just identify the problem we make a vaccine the vaccine gets deployed robot saves the day yeah we have a team of of like culturally sensitive adorable robots that are going out and yeah (laughs) we'll see (laughs) annalee newitz is the author of when robot and crow saved east st louis they're also a new york times contributing opinion writer and the co-host of the podcast our opinions are correct And that's all for this episode of Future Tense Fiction, a monthly podcast featuring short stories from Future Tense and Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination about how technology and science will change our lives. Tiara Darnell is our lead producer, editor, and sound designer. Production and editorial assistance from Mia Armstrong-Lopez, Tori Bosch, and Micah Espinosa. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of Slate Audio. When Robot and Crow Saved East St. Louis was written by Annalie Niewitz, edited by Kirsten Berg, and read by Jin Hammond. The other editors on the Future Tense Fiction team are Andres Martinez, Ed Finn, Tori Bosch, and Joey Eshrick. I'm your host, Maddie Stone. We'll see you in the future. <laughs>